Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Time now for the College Football Inquirer with Dan Wetzel. They know that our podcast is pro-romance. Pete I don't even remember what day I got engaged, but I remember everything about Chrissy's, <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy and Ian's engagement. With SI's Pat Forty. If you're going to sit around and wait for Florida State to win, you may never get engaged. <laughs> you can't count on that. Here's Pat, Pete, and Dan. Ah, welcome to the pod. All right, who the hell's going to be the next SC coach? Will Farrell. USC did not wait. Did not hesitate much to fire Clay Helton. Very, very good guy. Decent coach. This is Southern California. You need to be a great coach. And uh, he wasn't it. He made the move, as we pretty much predicted on Sunday. You kind of have to. The schedule sets up where someone can win a bunch of games here. And uh, you don't want to risk it on the guy you've been trying to get rid of for, for years. So how long until Urban Meyer resigns as the head coach? <laughs> What? Too soon? Did you see any of the Jacksonville game on Sunday? They are horrible. They got pounded by the Texans, and the Texans are horrible. There's no way that when the news came down, at least a flicker of Urban Meyer said, you're sitting on the Fox set right now. Maybe not. I don't know. Pete, you can, you're our Urban. You've talked to Urban recently. Went down there. He's not taking the job. He's not going to be able to pull this off. Yeah, but who is going to get it? I would say this about any NFL candidate right now. You don't fire your coach on September 12th or whatever day it was that they did it and wait for someone to go through an NFL season. So if they had a desire for Cliff Kingsbury, if they had a desire for Matt Rule, if they had a desire for Urban Meyer, you know, the early signing day is in December, which there's still I got to I haven't done the math yet, but there's weeks left in the NFL season. Some of those coaches are probably going towards the playoff, which would literally make it impossible for them to leave. I don't see them hiring a sitting NFL coach. I did. Have uh, you heard of the, the uh, have you heard of the Petrino? Uh, yes. Well, it would take someone like as Pat would like to call him in columns, the disingenuous drifter. It would take someone of the disingenuous drifters uh, ethical compass to uh, to write a note, leave it in the locker of all his players, not address them, go into the dark of the night and call the hogs like Bobby Petrino once did. Remarkably. Uh, maybe, remarkably. though. Maybe. Let's not rule anything out here. Yeah, I guess I guess that there's less pod <laughs> fodder if we just start crossing yeah. names off no, the list, no. right? Yeah, so my hunch in analyzing this, you can really crunch it down to five candidates. I did, I did 10 on, uh, I did 10 on Yahoo. I would think James Franklin has to be a top target. Luke Fickle, who obviously Mike Bone hired at Cincinnati. Mike Bone is now the USCAD would, would be right in the thick of the conversation. I think Bill O'Brien, whose name I didn't see on, on some other lists is going to be a viable name that gets vetted heavily at USC. I think the USC has always been infatuated with, uh, professional sports experience. Remember they hired Henry Bibb for no good reason in, uh, in in basketball and then fired. I think they followed up with Kevin O'Neill, if I'm right. So like there is in that pro market always like a little bit of an affinity for for that. I, I think Bill O'Brien's a very intriguing and, and real name there. Matt Campbell, certainly we know it'd be hard for him to leave that Ames tap, but with the league change at Iowa State and he has this just awesome crew of veteran players who all returned for this season, I would think he starts to 
begin to explore other possibilities. You know, he'd be a really he'd be a really intriguing fit there. There is some intrigue to PJ Fleck just coming in with a Pete Carroll like jolt, really putting the emphasis on recruiting and dominating the West Coast. I think the notion of Mario Cristobal, obviously he's got Oregon likely headed towards the playoff, right? I do think there are some impediments there, it, especially Oregon's winning. Because if you're going to the playoff, the, the coaches are unhirable. It's that simple because of the timeline. If James Franklin has Penn State going to the playoff, that would make him almost an untenable hire as well. But there's things working against Crystal Ball that would make that would that would make that more difficult than the first five I just I just mentioned. And then we can banter around later. But I think Chris Peterson would get a knock on the door more so than Bob Stoops. And I just don't know whether Chris Peterson is taken sufficient rest and wants to go back. There were reasons he didn't take the job back after the 2013 season. And USC, fundamentally, the bones haven't changed that much. So I'd be very surprised if from that group I just mentioned, the coach, the head coach at USC does not emerge from that group. And you may well be right, but if you're Mike Bone, why aren't you calling Lincoln Riley first? I, I mean, it's that's certainly a fair assessment. I just don't think Lincoln Riley is going to leave Oklahoma right now to go to USC. You, I mean, he's certainly worth a call, but I, I think that that's a little bit in the realm of calling Nick Saban or, you know what I mean, somebody like that. Like, I... Wait a minute. I, I thought somebody I just on think this it's podcast like realistic. strongly resembled you said that this is the time for Lincoln Riley to leave because they're not going to be able to recruit and they're going into a conference where they're not going to be able to win as much. Yes. And I meant leave for the NFL. Well, yeah. OK. But if he's looking to leave, don't you at least make a call? I would I would shoot your shot. He may not say yes. And I would I said I'm not I, telling. Yeah. I'm not telling them to not shoot their shot. I just don't think it's I I did not think it was viable enough to mention it on my list. If they go get Lincoln Riley, God bless him. But I think Lincoln Riley of Muleshoe, Texas is very comfortable at Oklahoma, the place that gave him a shot. And there's still a pretty good runway before they go to the SEC if he doesn't want to go there. There's very little about Lincoln Riley that's L.A. Yeah, but if he's going to the NFL, he's going to a big city almost assuredly, unless he ends up in Green Bay or Jacksonville. but then he's going to the NFL, so it's a different conversation. I guess. So, I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I, I yeah. look, shoot your shot, Mike Bone, shoot your shot, give Lincoln a ring. He's got the same agent as James Franklin, so you don't even have to make an extra phone yeah, call. Yeah, no, it's not it's not not a hard call. They have two of the top four players and rivals committed for class of twenty twenty three. QB, yep. Malachi Nelson. Uh who's and, from uh, Los Angeles area. Who's from Los Angeles, yeah. So I their recruiting's all right. It is for now. We'll see. Well, I mean We'll get to signing day and we'll see if it's still okay. And then get to 2023 and see what it looks like, which again, that's two years down the road. That's 2020. Those guys are 2023s. Uh, they got, they got good classes, but whatever. Go ahead. So I, yes, I, first of all, I mean, I would start with Lincoln Riley. He's probably going to say no, fine. Okay. And people get all uptight. Oh my God, we can't get turned down. Yes, you can. You can get turned down and be just fine. I do think Franklin and Fickle are right there. That's your next two. I don't know whether Luke Fickle really wants to work with Mike Bone again. I'm not sure he loved working with Mike Bone at Cincinnati. But, uh, and he's also, talk about a guy who's not really an L.A. guy. That's Luke Fickle. But he might also be looking and saying, I have taken Cincinnati as far as it's going to go. And yeah, we're going into the Big 12. But does that mean we're really in demonstrably better shape? I don't know. Franklin absolutely could do the job there. I think he would recruit extremely well at USC. After that, boy, Chris Peterson would be super attractive, but I agree. I'm not sure he has it in him to want to coach again and to want to coach again there. You know, I think that there was, you know, this is a guy that needed a break from coaching and maybe doesn't want to go back into a potential fishbowl existence at, at USC. Matt Campbell, I don't know. That name you want to, I mean, like if Muleshoe, Texas is a tough transition to LA, then Matt Campbell, Mr. Midwest, let's build everything very solidly and stolidly and unspectacularly and lose to our arrival every single year. I would be that turned on by him if I were USC. So, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to get great candidates, but you're also going to have to talk somebody out of a, out of a good job to go there. Pete Carroll was the fourth choice. If you recall, it might even been more than four. Well, four that we knew of. It was uh, yeah. Erickson, Bellotti, and uh, Mike Riley. <laughs> Those three all were, were clearly ahead of him. Uh, probably row. more. The famous L.A. Times headline, For Pete's sake, USC, why did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, so it's the thing about USC and a lot of these really good jobs. It's about the right guy. And there's a lot of right guys. The, there's a bigger margin 
there. Now, you wouldn't believe that having looked at the last few coaches that have gone uh, gone along here. But I do think a break from the Carroll. It's funny. No one wanted Pete Carroll. And then they spent all their time basically hiring the Pete Carroll tree. So uh, we'll go. I, to me, James Franklin's the best choice. I, I agree on Lincoln Riley. I think it'd be very exciting out there. I, oh, yeah. You know, LA, LA has one side of it, which is like Joe Cool, all that, surfer, you know, shades, whatever. But, you know, it's a diverse place. Everybody moves to LA. So I, I think Lincoln Riley would be all right there. I don't think it's maybe not like Gundy, but... <laughs> <laughs> But you know, if you win, man, LA will love you. Put Gundy, uh, Gundy's reality show in LA on the Pac-12 network. That I would watch Gundy in LA on the Pac-12 network. I would. That would be must see every week. <laughs> that that reality show would be better than the one they did last year, where he just went and like farmed with his dad. Yeah. <laughs> Which I still watched, but <laughs> then I, I kept wondering, like, why am I watching? Nothing wrong with farming, but it's not really a spectator sport. it's like oh yeah Yeah. here we go who would you hire pat if i could get anybody well you can't get lincoln riley i already okay of the the sort of realistic wheelhouse of these candidates who would you hire you know i would be perfectly fine with either franklin or fickle and i i would be okay with bill o'brien too you mentioned him i mean i i I really think bill o'brien has another great chapter of coaching in him Uh, just waiting for the right chance in the right spot. He did well at Penn State under tough circumstances. He really saved that program from cratering. And then he did well, you know, relatively well in the NFL. I mean, the the Texans were in the playoffs. He was not a great personnel guy, but I don't hold that against him. I don't look at him and say, that guy can't be a college coach because he got fired with the Texans. So, I mean, I I love those three. Now, I, I mean, I've always had a spot in my heart for Chris Peterson. I'm not sure he wants to do it, and I'm not sure that's the place for him to do it. Yeah, we went over this a couple weeks ago, but yeah, Bill O'Brien in the NFL was not a bad coach. No, four playoff appearances, four division crowns in the AFC South. He went 11 and five, 10 and six. They had, they were up 21 zip on the on the Chiefs. They blew that divisional game and everything changed. And he traded Deion, got sideways with DeAndre Hopkins and boom, they're done. But this is a, he, he was an excellent NFL coach. You know, he got fired after going 0-4. So a year, a year in the Bama car wash uh, would certainly be, uh, be good. You know, I don't think you need to have LA ties. Uh, I think you need to figure out how to keep LA kids at USC. But uh, I don't think it's a, it's a matter of I'm a West Coast guy or I got this or that. USC is the tie. L.A. wants USC to be really good. The kids want to go there. You just got to give them a reason to stop leaving and going somewhere else. Uh, that includes get it, playing an exciting style, winning big games, getting the Coliseum filled so that they feel like this is the big time environment. I think, Pete, in your story about all the, you know, how the top five preseason teams all had California quarterbacks, like the big thing was like they they what they'd go on recruiting visits and be like, this is unbelievable environment where I'm at down in Alabama or Clemson or whatever. And the Coliseum isn't quite that. It can be. I mean, man, I Coliseum on a Saturday night. When that yeah. they play, you know, those look pretty awesome, seems, man. Downtown LA in the background, there. the oh, sun yeah. coming down, and it's like, whew, not bad. One of those environments will not be Saturday when Oregon State visits for the debut <laughs> of interim coach Dante Williams. That will not go down in the all-time Coliseum environments. The Coliseum is the football version of the Carrier Dome, which for a big Monday game against Georgetown is like one of the great places to watch a game. And for the November Tuesday game against Canisius is like watching it in a drafty airplane hangar. The Coliseum yeah. is sort of the same thing. Like when, when half those seats are empty, it, yeah, it feels like they might as well just be playing it out in the desert somewhere. It's just that. It's, uh, you know, the Coliseum giveth and and taketh away. O'Brien's an interesting guy to talk about here because I think if he emerges as a candidate, and I think he'll certainly be considered, people are going to view him through the box of the DeAndre Hopkins personnel mismanagement as opposed to the breadth of his candidacy, which is going to be like, you know, like the square heads who talk on daytime talk shows and kind of stuff like that. There's no way because he doesn't know how to treat kids. Like that to me is going to be the most preposterous take because- the people who played for Bill O'Brien at Penn State, I mean, remember that the class of Hackenberg? I mean, those guys stuck with, like, they. Bill O'Brien bonded with those guys, and there's a good, genuine person there who has shown he can be a collegiate leader, he can recruit. When I did the, uh, 
West Coast quarterback story that Dan just mentioned about the California quarterbacks leaving. I was talking to Bryce Young's father, Bryce Young's from L.A., Craig Young. And uh, I said, hey, how's how's it going with, uh, you know, Bill O'Brien coming in? And like basically unprompted, it wasn't for the story or anything. Craig Young just raved. He said, look, I was I saw the DeAndre Hopkins stuff. I was a little apprehensive going in. He said, my son loves Bill O'Brien. He absolutely adores him. So I, I just think like the NFL failure, as Pete Carroll and others have taught us, doesn't necessarily that should be viewed as growth. It should not be viewed as and Bill O'Brien was not a failure. If no. you are above 500 as an NFL coach, eventually Bill O'Brien, the personnel guy, undercut Bill O'Brien, the coach. But I, I said this on the last pod when we were talking about uh, O'Brien. He's one of the five best offensive minds in football at either level, period. And if you can take the program builder side from Penn State with the offensive acumen and you should be able to have the best players in a, you know, nobody within 2000 miles of you should have better players than you, period. End of story, or at least 1500 miles of you. So if you combine those forces and he can become a galvanizing personality uh, in L.A., I think it could be pretty powerful. That said, there are certainly other guys who can do that, too. But we were just talking about O'Brien. I just thought it was worth mentioning not viewing him in a box. Let me just go back to O'Brien's record in the NFL. Okay, so he had two bad years. There was a four and 12 season, 17. They were three and three. And then uh, then Deshaun Watson hurt his knee and they won. They lost. They basically lost out. They won one game and they end up four and 12. And then there was the 0 and four uh, in 2020 when it just wore out. But that's that's five of his six full seasons with a winning record. You can't be anti-player in the NFL and last that long. The guy, the guys that don't get along with the players, he didn't get along with DeAndre Hopkins and he made a stupid trade. And and after that many years, it's hard. I mean, it's just hard to stay in your job for seven years. You have to be, and there's, there's just aren't that many guys. There's like Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, John Harbaugh. I don't know how many other guys, how many other NFL coaches are still there after seven years. So uh, again, like anybody who's critical of his NFL record has got it all wrong. This guy be coaching in the NFL. Uh, and so if he wants that, and then eight and four, seven and five at Penn State, so he's basically had one full losing season, and that's because he lost his, cor- his his rookie quarterback to a knee injury. You know, yeah. not bad, man. That guy coached Tom Brady. Pretty good, pretty good. So go ahead. Pat. He probably had a pretty big voice in that room to draft Deshaun Watson, which to us was the no-brainer of all no-brainers. But like, you know, th- that trade doesn't get executed by Rick Smith, I would think, without Bill O'Brien looking at that film and and, and stamping it. So there's that's a pretty good evaluation. Uh, you know, like some really smart people who get paid a lot of money, pick Mitch Trubisky and trade it, trade it up for Mitch Trubisky. So, you know, g- give him credit there, too. What about Cristobal? We haven't really talked about him much. I, you know, I'm not sure he would do it uh, because he's got most everything you need to win in the Pac-12 already. So do you uproot and go or not? I don't know. Uh, I mean, he's already getting five stars left and right out of California. It's not like he needs to go to USC to do that. He's got every facility you could possibly need. He's got a rainmaker booster there. I think the only reason you go from Oregon to USC is because you don't think you can recruit national championship level talent to Oregon because you just don't have the in-state recruiting base. And so you go to USC because you're going to be able to get a couple more of those guys. Now, Cristobal is getting players from Southern California. If there is a a super viable Trojan program, that becomes harder. But right. I, to me, there would be more of a panic move. Like, I can't get this done at Oregon because it's just those last two, three players that you need, that last five star in each class that I can't get because they just don't want to come all the way up here it is the only thing that's missing from the program where you sit there and say, I'm USC, they'll come here. I don't think he's got, I, I don't think he lacks for that confidence. And I think as he looks at his team, I just would be surprised he's at that. I think he's been building and he, if anything, he thinks I can do this no matter what. That's my take on it. You know, I, I think that the, the case for Crystal Ball is that you take essentially your your biggest national rival within your league and you and you undercut them because they've been raiding your backyard. So in some ways, that's a pretty good kneecap, right? If you say, okay, the, the one school that's really come in our backyard and dominated and gotten Justin Flo and gotten Kayvon Thibodeau and, 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 and really planted their roots. Now, Dante Williams, the head coach, was on the Oregon staff. 
before he came down, I believe it was two years ago, as part of kind of the Mike Bone staff rehab when he became the AD in November of 19. There's also, don't underestimate this with Cristobal. I mean, the case for Cristobal, we just saw Saturday, right? He went in the horseshoe and they pushed around Ohio State. It's a pretty, it's a pretty compelling case. The case against Cristobal is this, like that whole regime has sat there and fought him for a year, for two years between, you know, we need to beat Cristobal. We need to beat Oregon. We're going this recruiting battle. Don't underestimate how that animosity makes it difficult to go embrace a guy like that. Does that make sense? Like if if you sit around in your staff meetings and administratively and like, we got to beat him, we got to beat him, we got to beat him, we got to beat him. It's not going to be organic in your DNA to say, oh, let's go get him. That's just, that's, that's a, that's an awkward rewiring. I mean, they spent a lot more time at USC talking about beating crystal ball in Oregon and recruiting because, you know, there's 12 games a year, but recruiting is the other 350 days. They spent a lot more time and energy focused on them than Chip, who's taking guys from the portal and kind of being selective and not offering guys early and kind of doing the old Chris Peterson dance of our kind of guys. Whereas the West Coast aggressive schools are like, oh, Oregon offered him, we could offer him. Like there is a day-to-day ferocity that they would have to rewire that I think would be difficult on that on that part. And Crystal Ball's buyout's nine million, which USC can afford. Somebody can write that check, but that's not inconsequential either when when it comes down to it. So the confluence of those things I just mentioned, I would I would put him. Some people have really like pushed him as as a you know high end candidate there. I would just say the confluence of factors would make him unlikely. Also, he may not want to leave. Like it's pretty good living up there in Eugene. You know, there's a lot less day to day media pressure. It's a great place to live. You have roots established. You have a program identity. You've got everything the way you want it. He just signed a huge contract contract like money you're not leaving for money right that's and my thing i don't think that's, that's no that's the yeah. thing is like it, it, beyond usc's potential reticence to go get him was how much is his reticence to leave i think it's down to like does he think he can win a national championship at oregon and i think he listening to him is that he does that's the only reason you make that that leap that final leap within a conference again we'll see if he can if you know it, it becomes harder if, if USC gets really, really good. Well, this is going to dominate a lot of stuff. A lot of coaches are going to get extensions off of this one. <laughs> yeah. The old joke about USC was that, uh, you know, during past coaching searches, and they've had plenty, is that they should win the uh, the Federal Economic Stimulus Award because they, they got so many coaches, different raises at different places across the country. So that's an old yeah. that's an old hobby horse line I've broken out a oh, few yeah. times for the Trojan brass. They're They're getting that economy pumping, so. Sticking with L.A. football, the number of like renderings of L.A. football facilities through the years that were drawn up in an effort to get the other town to build a brand new stadium for you so you wouldn't move to L.A. (laughs) Billions. Think about how many billions of dollars in public stadiums were built around America for NFL teams because they might move to L.A. And I literally thought they'd never do it. And then Stan Crockett's just like, I'll build my own. But it was like, I mean, it's like, this is the greatest con going. He's Buffalo. <laughs> we, we're, I mean, they, but that's the problem the Bills have. They got nowhere to go. It's like, you know, you need a city. You need this. You need this. Uh, I don't know. Might have to go to L.A. Huh? Send the owner out there. Get a, get a picture of him on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, he's got business interests in L.A. Like, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, great. Uh, yeah. Quick aside here, since we're talking about buyouts and money and that sort of thing, and USC certainly amongst their alums can find whatever money they need. But a guy who had been a very involved booster and a big, big donor to football, B. Wayne Hughes, did die in August. Uh, I don't know whether that can affect their purse strings as far as, you know, let's go pay nine million to buy out this guy or that guy. But he was a big-time horse owner, spendthrift farm in, in Kentucky. Uh, he was involved in a lot of coaching decisions over the years at, uh, at USC and, and threw around a lot of money to help make things happen. He's no longer with us. Is he the storage facility guy, Pat? Was he the storage facility guy? I think so. I think so. I, just, I know him from horse racing. Uh, yes, storage facility. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So there's a if anyone really wants to dive in on like USC and why they're as dysfunctional as they have been, you know, since Pete Carroll left, the L.A. Times did an unbelievably detailed and great story a few years ago on Hughes. And it talked about how he built his empire and wielded his influence at USC. And essentially 
they don't say this overtly in the article, but essentially like Lynn Swan became the AD because he was Hughes's buddy. Like that's right. pretty much what yes. the inference is. And so if you're wondering like how USC went through like back-to-back catastrophic athletic director hires that led to multiple federal investigations and somehow basically a program that was too big to fail began failing at a, at a crazy rate. It all ties back to sort of kowtowing to a billionaire. And yes. uh, the LA Times, if you Google Hughes and LA Times, it, it, it ran four or five years ago. It was one of the best explanatory. I, I finished reading that and I was like, oh my God. I was yeah. like, that, like, that explains everything. Like you could you could really all funnel it back to uh, funnel it back to that. So I know we have yeah. uh, some journalism oh. students that that read our that listen to our podcast. That was like exemplarily journalism to explain how a place could get so sideways. Yeah, a billionaire with a with nineteen seventies USC nostalgia ran the athletic department basically for for a while and not well. Yes, no. very well, poorly. Pass the hat down at the Newport <laughs> Beach yacht clubs. Yeah. <laughs> scrounge up their millions. I, I somehow managed to expect that uh, USC will will be able to handle it. All right, we're going to get to some SEC football. Very interesting week in the SEC. But first, I want to get to this. It really fired up the masses and, of course, our listeners because they know that our podcast is pro-romance. This is a <laughs> that we are about love and relationships here. Just ask Chad Morris. Yes, dating back to when I ripped then Arkansas coach Chad Morris for suspending two of his players for the sin of chatting up the Mississippi State dance team. (laughs) There's a reason Chad Morris is no longer a head coach. And that's exactly those poor, those poor kids at Allen high school where Chad's coaching now, like, are they not able to talk to the cheerleaders? No girlfriends, no girlfriends, (laughs) women, weaken knees. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Frank Howard. Anytime you can get the Mickey, you know, Mickey imitation from Rocky, you know, you risk permanently <laughs> damaging your vocal cord. But anyway, uh, reserve offensive lineman Brady Scott proposed to his girlfriend, Michaela Pierce, on the field, Doe Campbell Stadium, just moments after the gut-wrenching, humiliating loss, Seminoles loss to Jacksonville State on Saturday night. Uh, pictures emerged, video emerged, and uh, then Florida State fans got angry because it, it's a sign that this kid's heart wasn't in it. The football game, apparently his heart was in the relationship. There was all sorts of uh, tumult about this. I got to start with this. People seem to want to care about our opinion on this. Uh, should Michaela, I'm sure Brady's a good dude, but should she have accepted or should she have said, come back when you win a game? <laughs> I mean, that's the real question I have. Now, there were family and friends there to watch. They got her down on the field. So this was pre-planned. And then, you know, and then should the loss have have upset the plan and you wait a week? Or is it okay to always have that worst, one of the worst losses in the history of Florida State football as the backdrop of your... uh, of your nuptials. Pat, you've been married a long time. Please, you know, and you are really a romantic. Yeah. He he just recently got married. Love conquers all Florida state (laughs) conquers none right now. They don't beat anybody. So if you're going to sit around and wait for Florida state to win, you may never get engaged. You can't count on that. I mean, you plan the thing as best you can. You say, all right, let's do it with the FCS team in town. We should win that one. (laughs) And if they don't, you just, well, you don't just cancel then. I mean, look, the poor guy had put all this effort into it. He got the ring. He had the family there and everything. <laughs> I mean, timing's not ideal. Jacksonville <laughs> State's like still on the field celebrating. And you're over there having this moment. But God bless the kid, man. You know, let, let him have his moment. And Florida State, get better. And then you don't have to worry about how awkward this looks. I blame this all on... Adam Fuller, the defensive coordinator for a terrible <laughs> secondary coverage. I blame it on Mike Norvell. I do not blame Brady Scott for being on a bad team. So Michaela saying yes was okay. Yes, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's not her fault Florida State's bad at football. That's right. <laughs> right? That's what she's saying. So I'm going to take this from a little different perspective here. I'm certainly not going to tell Brady and Michaela, you know, I, they're not coming to me as their dear Abby of their love life. But I will say this. There was missed opportunity here because 
If you look at the single greatest post-game engagement in the history of mm-hmm. college football, it was Ian Johnson and the immortal Chrissy Popadix getting married <laughs> after the Boise Oklahoma game. There was a hook and ladder. There was a Statue of Liberty. There was absolutely everything you could ask for in a game. And the engagement made it all time immortal. We were. Yeah, I don't even remember what. I don't even remember what day I got engaged, but I remember everything about Chrissy's, <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy and Ian's engagement. It was the great love story of the history of college football. You could do better, Brady. You could do better. You could fit into lore better. Unfortunately, the timing emerged, and you were a bit but of a punchline. I prefer to remember Ian as the immortal. That's it. If you think about it, though. He's part of an immortal play. They first time they've ever lost to an FCS uh, team, and it's on a fifty-nine <laughs> yard hail mary that you your coordinator totally botched. I mean, he wasn't on the field for it. No, he wasn't on the field for it. The only love story better than Johnson and Papa Dix was uh, Charlie Weiss and unneeded contract extensions. I believe is the. <laughs> <laughs> I think the pressure on Johnson and Popadix is they can't get divorced. I mean, because then it becomes no, like, for sure. yeah, you got to make it work. You got to make it work. And I do feel this here. So, and I like their style. I like Michaela and Brady's style because they already posted their wedding registry online. Oh. I have obtained, uh, I have obtained the wedding registry. This is a true one. I'm not making this up. You know, uh, Trevor Lawrence and uh, mm. Marissa Lawrence, uh, whatever her first, Maori, Marissa Maori. Should we buy them a toaster? Should we all chip uh, well, in? If we all brought in 20 bucks, we could get them a toaster for at least like if we're going to make fun of the poor couple, we should probably buy them a toaster, right? Well, here's the deal. If you want to know the problem with FSU football and why they've fallen so <laughs> far behind Clemson and the ACC, all you got to do is look at what these guys are asking for comparatively on the wedding registry. Trevor and Marissa were going high-end toasters, high-end everything. I mean, it was – this guy's looking for, like, wine glasses, like a knife and fork set, (laughs) uh, a paddle grater, cheese grater. A what? Microplane Master Series course paddle grater, $29.95. Maybe that crackhead in Kentucky stole his cheese grater and he needed a new (laughs) one. Yeah. A set of three stainless steel strainers and sifters, $24.95. FSU is bargain basement. They're just hanging out at the crate and barrel. Trevor Lawrence is sitting around with everything. Uh, I appreciate a very offensive alignment here. There's some telltales. The ground meat chopper. Ooh. <laughs> really? All right. Ground meat That's, chopper. Yeah, yeah, when he goes out and shoots a wild boar up there in the panhandle and brings it back, he can grind it up. $12.99. That has already been purchased. A gravy boat, of course. <laughs> Is there a toaster on there? Is there a toaster? No toaster. No. Okay. A ruffled pie dish. Absolutely. <laughs> Got to make sure you get a good apple pie in there. Anyone looking to, uh, to, to, to help out this couple as they're under duress, they've already started capitalizing on it. Uh, the wedding is March 4, 2023. We uh, set clear the date, save the date. All right. I'm writing it down uh, right now, waiting for my invitation. Crate and barrel registry number 6376838. Go ahead. <laughs> Michaela Pierce and Brady Scott. I have to tell our editors we can't cover conference ter- basketball tournaments that week. Ah. <laughs> we have a bunch of big SEC games this weekend. Auburn visits Penn State. In, uh, in a very interesting one. I want to start with just this about the SEC in general, and SEC West maybe in particular. Going into the season, we looked at the SEC as a little top-heavy. And let me start all SEC conversations with this. Alabama fans, yes, every one of your players is better than everyone else in the league. <laughs> all 22 spots on the all-SEC team. Hell, the all-American team should be filled with Crimson Tide players. Nick Saban should be a unanimous choice as coach of the year. All five Heisman finalists should be Bama players. Let's there. get that out of the way. Disclaimer. Done. All I right. don't want the, the snowflakes right. of Tuscaloosa getting upset because I'm talking about anybody else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the belief was this was maybe a little top heavy. Georgia, Alabama, and this is what it's going to be. We're not really sure what else. In the SEC West, the teams that we thought would be a little down, maybe at the bottom, have all played really well. Arkansas blows out Texas. 
Ole Miss beats Louisville handily. Mississippi State's 2-0. and They beat NC State fairly well. We'll see what Auburn's got this weekend. On the other side, Kentucky looks good. I'm not going to say South Carolina's good, but they just got through a 2-0 and stretch with a grad assistant as, as their quarterback. Nice win at ECU. LSU obviously struggled at UCLA. A&M did not impress up at Colorado. Is it more likely we're going to have a little chaos in the SEC than maybe we thought? Because the gap maybe is a little closer between these other teams, you can't just sit there and be like, oh, A&M, they can go 11-1. and That's not an easy gauntlet now based on what we've seen. Is this going to be a kind of a little bit of a wild SEC, which I think we would all love to uh, – Love to see. Pat? Oh, I think it's possible. I really do. I mean, yeah, the SEC West is 13-1 and right now as a league, and I believe all of them have played at least one Power 5 opponent, right? So LSU's the only loss. Yeah, LSU at UCLA. So that's getting it done. I mean, that that is – they they the old saw, oh, it's just Alabama and everybody else. The SEC's overrated. Uh Uh-uh. Uh uh-uh. uh. I mean, do you want to be in the SEC West this year? That's where, if you're Texas or Oklahoma and you're looking at this, you say, You want to join that? Okay. But I, yeah, I look, we'll find out a lot about Auburn this weekend. That's the one team they have not played anybody yet. But everybody else, I was like, I was super impressed with Mississippi State beating the dog out of NC State. And if you look, Mississippi State was down 20 to Louisiana Tech. And since then, They've rolled two straight games. Uh, Ole Miss looks very explosive and looks better on defense. Arkansas looks physical as hell. A&M, yeah, now the quarterback injury there to Haynes King, that could be an issue. But give credit to Zach Calzada, who came in and was looked like he had, you know, was one of those guys that woke up a half hour late for the SAT and just rushed in in a blind panic. By the end of the game, he had two <laughs> really good drives to to get them a victory there. So, I, I am impressed by what we've seen from the SEC so far. And yes, I think there could be losses out there for almost everybody in the league. We'll see about Georgia and Alabama, but everybody else, you better be on notice every week. I agree with everything Pat said. And I think spinning forward, Dan, like the the thought is this. Is this a glimpse of where college football is going? Now, some of this is quintessential 2021 stuff, right? The bottom half of the league, guys, I don't know the super senior numbers off the top of my head, but there's a lot more of them at the Arkansas and Mississippi States and Ole Misses than there are in Alabama where they all rolled, right? So some of this, like like, like we said, and I wrote a column about this from some media day, like I think there's the potential for more chaos in college football this year because the top, top, top has lost all the guys to the NFL and your middle class and, in, in, you know, somebody has to finish last in the SEC West, your lower class has a lot of seniors and veterans and guys back. And those places are all really attractive destinations in the transfer portal. Guys want to go play in the SEC. The SEC is a destination, you know, arguably the best destination in all of college sports. So the combination of older guys, some of the better imports and transfers and different things, I think have allowed that lower middle class, middle class in the SEC to rise up. And that's why you, you you have the situation where they are. So I agree. There's there's a chance for quite a bit of chaos in that league this year. Um, all right. Let's talk about this Auburn game at Penn State. It's going to be a whiteout. It's going to be an incredible environment. I think we've all been to Penn State for those whiteouts. It, I don't know how it gets better than that. Real quick note that uh, we will pick these games in race for the case later in the week. Just so yeah, the, we will the pick the these games later in the week on our Race for the Case podcast. So probably be out Thursday for your guidance. How big of a game is this? This is sort of the the first, I believe, SEC Big Ten clash since the Alliance SEC did. I mean, I know this is just all narrative and has nothing to do with who's going to win the game or, you know, who's going to be effective in playing. But how big of a game is it for for this? And how big of a game is it for James Franklin and Penn State to stand up to a it's Auburn. Auburn's on a brand new coach. Uh, this isn't Alabama coming in. It's Auburn. You know, how much, how important is this game, Pat? Oh, I think it's real important. I, much more important, I agree, for Penn State and for, for James Franklin to put Auburn in its place, so to speak. I mean, coming into the year, people were thinking Auburn could be the fifth, sixth best team in the West. If they go up into Happy Valley into a whiteout and win that game, that would be, first, would be huge for Brian Harson. I think it would it would be a big repudiation for Penn State and the Big Ten. You know, they, they'll, for, forever they have been saying, 
oh, nobody, the teams won't leave the South. They won't come up here and play. And what they really mean is we want them to come play in November when it's 30 degrees. But still, you're getting them now. You are getting Auburn to come to Happy Valley, and they're going to put on everything they can put on them, and you should be the better team. So for Big Ten purposes, which just took a big kick in the teeth with Ohio State losing, and for Penn State purposes specifically, say, hey, Maybe we can be the big dogs in the East. Maybe we can win the Big Ten. Maybe we can go to the college football playoff. You take care of business here. So I'm really more intrigued by Auburn this week than I am about Penn State. And, and here's why. We're two games into the Brian Harson era, and we've got they, they haven't showed their cards yet, right? We, we don't know anything. Like Bo Nix has put up some nice statistics against pedestrian uh, competition. Obviously, Auburn opened the season with the, uh, with the dynamic duo of Akron and Alabama State. So, you know, they rolled up 60 both times. It's feel-good vibes on the planes. Brian Harson came to Auburn, and he came with a reputation as a quarterback whisperer. He came with a reputation as a guy who can identify, recruit, and develop quarterbacks. Remember, Zach Wilson was recruited to Brian Harson at Boise before he late flipped and stayed home and went to, uh, and went to BYU. Harson knows what he's doing with quarterbacks. Now, Bo Nix really since the game where he spun around four times and happened to upset Oregon at the beginning of 2019 has, has been generally a disappointment as a, as an sec quarterback, considering the hype he came in with, if Brian Harson can have Bo Nix show he's made discernible steps forward in his development, discernible steps forward in his progression, you go into that whiteout environment, play an efficient, effective game and win. That's a big win for the tenure of Brian Harson. Because right now, Brian Arson really doesn't have anything to hang his hat on. Auburn ain't recruiting great. The, the Really, the defining headlines about Auburn have been negative this offseason when it when it all comes down to it. Obviously, his positive COVID test was a, was a setback, at least perceptionally. So I really think going forward, this is a chance for Harson to stake, stake out a, a, a clear linear path future and a bit of an identity early in his tenure. All right. Number one, Alabama visits number 11, Florida. In the swamp, this is at times a great rivalry. They don't play uh, enough. Biggest question to me and to many is how much Dan Mullen, Gator coach, play Anthony Richardson. Been 6 of 11 throwing for 192 yards and two touchdowns and 11 rushes for 275 yards and two touchdowns. He's had the ball 17 times in his hand. There's been four touchdowns. Nice, nice uh, conversion rate there. The data guys must love it. That said, Mullins uh, has not gone with him. Since, you know, some of these scrambles are because he blows every every passing assignment. There's intricacies he doesn't get and all that. But this kid, you know, it's unfair comparison. But when he's running, he looks like Tebow. Or, or, or he looks like a combo of Tebow and Cam Newton. Florida, a great run. You know, I mean, he just looks, unbe- looks unbelievable. <laughs> it's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. How much do you have to play him? He's definitely the fan favorite. You know, think about Bama is you can't just like give a couple series into the game and, you know, see how things are going and make a decision. It's like you get your doors blown off before you even start. But uh, obviously massive game rematch of the SEC championship game last year. Last year, uh, Pat, your thoughts on uh, on the Gators and the, and the tie? Oh, I can't wait to see it. And specifically, really just can't wait to see, yeah, what Mullen does with Richardson and what all Nick Saban throws at him. It appears through limited exposure, but still what we saw, an elite talent. I mean, unbelievable athleticism at 6'4", 235 at least, probably more than 235. Uh, unbelievable arm. His He's averaging 21.2 yards per play, which is like just stupid. Huh. Uh, but that's he's just been this ridiculous big play guy. But, yes, that was Mullen's thing. What was his quote here? I had it in the 40-yard dash. Why, you know, why he's sometimes hesitant about him. This is in the opening game against Fort Atlantic. He drops back, misses a protection check, misses the hot throw, misses the primary read, then scrambles around and runs, and everybody thinks, What's a spe- what a spectacular play. So, fair enough point. Those kind of plays against Alabama, instead of being a 70-yard a run, could be a five-yard run. They also could be... For you know, sack fumble. They could be pick six uh, because Nick Saban will dial some stuff up with incredible athletes to throw at him. So 
I can understand Dan Mullen being in a position of we don't want to get the kid just devoured by this incredible defense and this incredible defensive mind. But also, on the other hand, you need that elite athleticism to beat Alabama. We saw, you know, if you want to go all the way back to Johnny Manziel doing it and Ezekiel Elliott and the teams that have been able to beat Alabama during this incredible run have had to have that difference-making kind of talent, and this guy could be that. So this summer, I was talking to a scout who went through uh, who went through Gainesville, and he called me and said, "I I don't miss on this. You need to write something about Anthony Richardson." He's like, "He is a cheat code," and of course, I didn't write anything about him. I did tweet about him before the South Florida game, saying it'd be interesting to see, and people were buzzing about him. But that was a big swing and miss by me as uh, a former coworker, Pat, and current coworker Dan. No, I, I swing and miss quite a bit, so I, I regret not realizing just how vast his potential is. I don't feel like he was a, you know, elite 11 dynamic recruit. He's from Gainesville. And I feel like he, his name isn't in that name of like the circles that go around to elite 11 and QB collective and all these places. And we kind of get to know him during their recruitment. So uh, he's a fine man. He's a specimen. Some of those throws, like he, they're wow throws, right? Like, wow. Like he steps back. There's a, there's pop there. Like I am specifically excited to watch him in that game. And that's no offense to Emory Jones, who's a good player and a fine quarterback. But yes, this may be the loudest carping for a backup that I've heard in a really long time. Like, like I don't think there's been anything else this season like it. You know, maybe since JT Daniels last year, when the when the law firm was starting to sputter, uh, sputter out for Georgia. But yeah, no, it, it, great subplot, great game. Are you going to go, Pat? Are you are you going I'm to Gainesville? Not. Ross Ross Dellinger's okay. going. I think that. Uh, there's a very real, uh, you know, that that's going to be a, like a once a decade environment. They haven't played there, I believe, since 11. And it's going to be the, the Swamp Rockin' is one of the great environments in all of uh, in all of college football. And uh, it's going to be a cool moment. Look, this game could get out of hand. Let's let's just be real. Right. I do think the one thing Mullen does and did in the SEC title game is he finds a way to take their talent and score points and make offense. I just don't have any sense at this point if this Florida defense can stop anybody, if they have evolved under Grantham and, and what their talent level is. The NFL people like their defense. It's one of the reasons why they saw Anthony Richardson so much, because he was you know, the backup quarterback blowing up the first team defense. But that's college football on Saturday, right? You got the swamp rocking. You got the tide coming in. I think, you know, two highly ranked teams, ton of talent on the field. Let's let it rip. All right. Let's get to one other game to before we finish up this podcast. And again, our picks will come out later this week on Race for the Case. Oklahoma hosts Nebraska. Historic game. Two programs in different spots, obviously. Uh, but if you ever want to know why, uh, if you're a younger fan and you want to know why people flip out about this game, uh, I'm looking at it from 1971. They played, they were one and two. Well, Nebraska was number one. Oklahoma was number two. I believe it was called like the game of the century then, one of the many games of the century. Uh, and Nebraska won 35-31. From that point on, there were between 71 and 88, 16 of the next 18, 19 games here. Both teams were ranked at least in the top 11. And I think it had a, at least one top five team in every one of those playings. So for nearly two decades, this thing was an end of the year, Thanksgiving weekend, top five battle, basically. Top, at least top 10. Many times, either the Sooners or the or the uh, Huskers were, were number one. The loss of the Big 12 when Nebraska left, obviously ended this. Yeah, it just sucks for the sport, right? Haven't played since 2010. They got a two-game series. Scott Frost tried to get out of it or delay it, and we may find out why on Saturday. But uh, just how cool is this game? You're going to get to see it played. And do you have any hope that the Huskers can uh, pull up some magic and try to keep it close? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Big 8 territory, so I grew up with Oklahoma-Nebraska being one of the absolute centerpiece games. And you go back to those 1970s games on Thanksgiving weekend, and that was must-watch. If you grew up in the Midwest, maybe it was a little bit more Ohio State-Michigan. Some folks, it was USC-Notre Dame when they were in Los Angeles. But for in Big 8 country, that was the game. And it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was option football, smashing each other on artificial turf when it's 35 degrees and it's 17 to 14. It was, it was awesome. Uh, really good stuff. And by the way, that 1971 season, those two were one and two, and Colorado was number three. Big Eight had one, two, and three that uh, that season. But 
This is a long time, long way from that. As you said, obviously the conference blew up. Nebraska is completely in the tank. Nebraska should get absolutely annihilated here, and I think they probably will. See nothing to indicate otherwise from the Cornhuskers yet. Oklahoma was not that impressive against Tulane. Their defense turned out to be, you know, that the, the offseason overrated. But uh, this really, what this game does is remind you how good it used to be. It doesn't tell you how good it is or can be. It just says how good it used to be. And that that's unfortunate, but that's where we are. And one other thing I'll add real quick. Joe Castiglione was so mad, the athletic director at Oklahoma, when Fox put this game in the 11 a.m. local window, noon kickoff, because he thought it should have been prime time because it's the 50th anniversary of that game. Fox isn't trying to market nostalgia. They're trying to market a good game, and this one isn't it. And I also wonder if Joe's outrage over that might have been a little bit exaggerated because he knew that they were getting ready to get out of the Big 12, and he wanted to kind of gin up a little bit of anti-Big 12, anti-Fox support. But that's a whole other topic. The, the only way Nebraska could stay in this game is if Oklahoma's defense fails to show up again like it did against Tulane. You look back at Tulane's passing stats and look, all the credit in the world to Michael Pratt, very talented young quarterback at Tulane. I think way down the road, he's an NFL prospect. That Chip Long, who was a very good coordinator at Notre Dame, calling plays for Tulane on that on that day. But at the, at the end of the day, Tulane had 400 yards total offense. They had 296 passing yards. They averaged 11 yards of passing attempt. The problem is Nebraska has no pass game. I mean, we saw that against Illinois. They don't have receivers that can separate. Their best chance is Martinez running the ball. I just don't know if they're going to be able to execute a game plan based solely on that. I think Oklahoma's defensive front is going to be by far the best that they've seen so far this year. So I don't see a lot of pathways to victory. But luckily, there's pathways to nostalgia. Now that we know the reality of this game, they should play it at 9 a.m., not 11 a.m., because it's really (laughs) just not particularly relevant in the uh, the big scheme of college football. I love the throwback nature of it. I love what it represents— I don't know if I buy the Joe C conspiracy theory on uh, on on he knew they were leaving, so he kind of stuck it up Fox on the way out. I do know this: Joe C is a calculated guy who's not a public carper. He's not a guy right. who shows up in the in the Daily Ticker often, just sort of spouting you know spouting off on exactly. on this and that. He is calculated, so that's what that's why I thought that because he's he's no, very sure. circumspect no. he's very diplomatic and that was very not diplomatic so I, I may not be right yes. but that's my that's my in-house conspiracy I just I, I just think it's not going to get a great rating it's gonna be the big noon game that's fine it'll do okay but people don't want to watch this game because Nebraska isn't any good I I get why if I was going to have a sold out nostalgia filled Gaylord family Stadium Memorial Stadium down in Oklahoma and I was probably going to beat these guys by 50. Yeah, I'd want it at prime time too. Yeah, <laughs> I want the whole country watching. You know, so uh, but I just I don't see it. I don't know. There's no way. Anyway, you might as well have uh, a couple I'm, Tito's and soda before you annihilate your old rival, right? Yeah, enjoy the day. <laughs> Instead of enjoy bloody marys, day. I guess Josie's anti bloody mary. That's what this comes down. to. <laughs> and this is basically the ultimate. Like, yeah, we scheduled Nebraska as our non-con. It's like this is going to be great. We'll see. We'll see if Nebraska's got any fight pretty soon. Neither Colorado, Nebraska, or Oklahoma will be in the big 8, 12, whatever. So. But if Nebraska could not handle the speed of Illinois, <laughs> good luck. Good luck. All right, that's our pod. All right, we're going to be back later in the week with our, our picks podcast, Race for the Case, and uh, new BetMGM customers, new BetMGM customers who bet $1 on any game this weekend. One buck will receive $100 in free bets added to their account. That's it. Bet a dollar, get a hundred. You don't need to win your bet to receive the promotion. Must be 21 or over in Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming only. Terms apply, of course. Go to betmgm.com slash yahoo special. Betmgm.com. Yahoo special to get started. Use promo code sportsbook when making your first deposit. Uh, Again, we'll be back later in the week with the race for the case. Please continue to subscribe, share us on social media, tell your friends, play us at your tailgate on the way to the tailgate. We need, uh, we need help getting as many uh, listeners to this podcast as we can get. Talk to you later.